0: Some of you may remember in 1994, the country of Rwanda erupted into a humanitarian crisis. The country, some of you may know, was largely made up of two groups of people the Hutus and the Tutsis. Those names may ring a bell, even if you don't remember the humanitarian crisis. But the Hutus were the Uh, The larger group, numerically, they made up about 85% of the population of Rwanda. But the Tutsis, for a long time, had been the aristocracy of the country. They'd had a better life economically, and so had been the ruling class. Well, eventually, the Hutus came to power in Rwanda, and there was quite a bit of tension between the two groups. Well, in 1994, there was a Hutu president, and he died and the Hutus blamed the Tutsis for his death. And so the Hutu-run government set up roadblocks throughout the country of Rwanda and started systematically killing all of the Tutsis that they could find. And in Rwanda, um, because of British colonial rule, they had uh, exacerbated the uh, distinctions between the Hutus and the Tutsis. So your whether you were a Hutu or a Tutsi, was found on your ID card. Um, It was like having your class written on your driver's license. And so you could very quickly and easily tell which group one was in. And so they set up these roadblocks and they had people show their IDs and then they would just start systematically killing them, often with machetes and other terrible ways. And it resulted in neighbors going after neighbors, even some husbands killing their wives a Hutu husband would kill a Tutsi wife. And even people who didn't want to do it were forced to kill their neighbors because they were worried that if they showed sympathy toward the Tutsis, then the Hutu government would come in and they would kill them right along with them. And that happened frequently in the country. And so this genocide started happening. And when all of it was said and done, nearly a million people lost their lives in 12 weeks. And over 2 million people were displaced as refugees. Now, you look at that, maybe you remember that happening. I vaguely do. I was 12 or 13 when it happened. And you think, how could something like this take place? I mean, how could people be so cruel and so systematic in their killing of other human beings? What leads people to evil on this magnitude of a scale? How does something like this take place? Unless you think that this is a result of the poverty in Africa or some sort of problem with the African continent, let me remind you that our country promoted the system of slavery for hundreds of years here based on race, and slavery encouraged and celebrated the same sort of dehumanizing activity that happened over in Rwanda. And if you're honest, if you think about it even at all, human history is filled with evil actions on this scale, with genocide, with wars. The same sort of things that happened in Rwanda and happened here in the United States with slavery and Jim Crow laws. Our history is filled with these sort of events. It's sobering, it's depressing. But it's not only the large-scale evils that should get our attention. I mean, those large-scale evils are made up of a bunch of tiny, small sins and evils and wickedness that are committed and perpetrated by individual people. And in our country, even as stable as it may be, every single day, average people cheat, they steal, they envy one another, they lie, they hate They exploit one another. And some of us have been involved in those activities this week. And so if you look at the news at all, if you even think about your own life, the lives of those around you, your coworkers, our world is filled with wrongdoing, with wrong thinking, with wrong feeling and emotions. Where does it come from? What is wrong with us? (laughs) And that's the question on the screen. It's a question we asked last week. Now, I know it sounds negative, right? This is... This is not the way that you attract a bunch of people to your church, right? By, by preaching two messages called what's wrong with us. And I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but imagine for a moment that you've been struggling with a headache and you go into the doctor. The doctor quickly looks at you. You have a series of headaches that you've been having over a month or two. The doctor looks at you, doesn't really do an exam, and diagnoses you as having migraine headaches, And gives you some pills to help with those migraine headaches. Well, the pills aren't helping that much. And a couple of months later, you realize that what you actually have is a tumor on your brain that's aggressive and malignant. And it's too late to deal with it now because the doctor didn't diagnose it correctly and didn't take action when when he could have. Well, as bad as that news would be to know that you have cancer and you have a malignant tumor, you would want to know what the real issue is so that you could talk about the plan of treatment and what you're going to do to deal with the real issue there. You wouldn't want them to lie to you and tell you that, no, it's just some migraine headaches and we can take care of it with some pills. The medicine for the migraine headaches is not going to do anything for the headaches and ultimately it's a waste of time for you. And so this morning, under the guidance of God's word, we want to talk about the tumor that has been wreaking havoc on the human race for thousands of years. And we want to do that from Mark chapter 7. So turn there, if you will, maybe some of you are already there. But this particular tumor is malignant, it's violent, and it's out to make your life miserable. And it's... If possible, this tumor wants to keep you from recognizing its work and what's going on. Now, as, as we think about all of that and the depressing nature of that, thankfully, we have a very able doctor, to keep this doctor-patient metaphor going, we have a very able doctor who is able to give us the right diagnosis this morning. So Matthew chapter 7, last week we looked at the first part of this, This week, we're going to look at the second part. Last week was verses 1 to 13. This week is verses 14 to 23. And this morning, we're going to see two answers to this question. We asked this question last week, and we talked about how the Pharisees got this wrong. This week, we're going to see two answers to this question, what's wrong with us? And I think we're going to end on an encouraging note this morning, all right? So don't go down in the, the dumps quite yet. This is a helpful, helpful text. So what's wrong with us? Two answers to this. And the first one, it's not, what's wrong with us? It's not the outside in. This is not the issue. It doesn't come from outside. So last week at the beginning of this chapter, all the way through verse 13, we saw this scene where there's a delegation of religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, and they make their way to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they begin to question Jesus about the hand-washing practices of his disciples. Seems like sort of a petty thing to get hung up on. But remember, the issue here is much bigger than just hand-washing. It's about cleanness versus uncleanness, and it's about what makes a person unable to come into the presence of God. That's the issue. It's about defilement. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Israel was to be a holy nation. They were to be set apart from all the other nations. And the Old Testament is filled with commands that help Israel and that that tell them how to maintain that distinctiveness and what they're supposed to do to be a holy people. So the Pharisees have a legitimate concern. But as as we studied this passage last week, we saw that in this case the Pharisees had pushed beyond what the Old Testament Scripture said, and they ended up requiring these traditions of the Jewish people. And so they're going beyond the Old Testament, and they're requiring these extra rules and these extra regulations on top of what the Old Testament teaches. And essentially what happened is they ended up equating their traditions with the Word of God. And so remember, it's not like their traditions get lifted up to the level of the word of God. What actually happens when you put those on the same level is the word of God gets lowered to man-made regulations. And then people ultimately feel like, I don't even want to obey this God's word and ends up cheapening the Bible. And so Jesus gave an example of this in verses 10 through 13. And then if you look at verse 13, when he finishes, he says there, thus, you are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And so they were negating the importance of God's word by these man-made traditions that they were holding on to. So now in verses 14 to 23, which is what we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is going to explain the real issue with defilement. Where does defilement come from? What actually makes us unable to approach a holy God. So the Pharisees were right to pursue holiness. They were right to be concerned about defilement, but ultimately they were placing the emphasis in the wrong place. They were putting the weight on the wrong foot as they were thinking about this question of what's wrong with us. They didn't understand what the real issue is with human beings. And this is so helpful for us to know what what our problem really is. What's wrong with us? So now in this passage, Jesus is going to tell us what is not the issue. And he's going to make that clear in verses 14 and 19. It's not from the outside in. And all of that is a setup for the end of this text, which is verses 20 to 23. And there he's going to tell us exactly what the issue is. Where does our problem lie? So as you get to this, look at verse 14 here. He called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. So as he begins to launch into this, he gathers the people around him. Maybe at this point the Pharisees had left. We don't know. Maybe they were still hanging around listening to what Jesus had to say. Maybe they were embarrassed by his exposure of their sinfulness and their cheapening of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they went away. Who knows where they were at? But the point is Christ gathers a crowd of onlookers here. And he's going to give them some instruction after he's had this confrontation with the Pharisees. And if you look at his words here in verse 14, hear me, all of you, and understand. That reminds us of what he said in Mark chapter 4 when he told all of those parables. He would tell them over and over again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen, he would talk about the importance of hearing what he has to say. So it's obvious that whatever he's going to say here is going to be significant for these people to understand. Look at verse 15. Here's what he says. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So you can see in verse 15, he uses the word defile twice. Now we saw last week that that was a key word, to this whole issue and what the Pharisee's problem was. So he uses the same word here, and he's going to continue on that trajectory and that instruction. So the issue is what keeps a person from being able to go into God's presence? What makes him unholy before a holy God? Now, if you were to just take that statement there, verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If you took that in isolation... That may be kind of a confusing statement. I mean, you and I know what he's talking about because we've read the whole passage before. But the Jews, hearing that statement on its own, it may have been a bit confusing to them. The disciples don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying. And so Jesus is going to explain to them what he's what he's going to what he means by this after they come to him. Now If you're looking in your Bible, just a quick side note here so you're not confused. You see verse 15, and then if you're in the ESV, you don't see verse 16, and you see verse 17. Just to be clear, verse 16 is not there in the oldest manuscripts, but it is in some of the newer ones. Your Bible probably has a note there letting you know that it's there. Um, But regardless of how the verses are numbered or what your Bible says there, look at the disciples' reaction in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, so they're on their own. We've seen this several times in the gospel of Mark. His disciples asked him about the parable. So remember in Mark 4, Jesus tells the parable of the soils, the four different types of soils. And the disciples don't understand. And so they come to him and they want to they understand. They want him to explain it to them. And it's interesting here that they call this, this saying in verse 15 a parable. I would not have thought of that as a parable as I'm reading through it, but the disciples, apparently it's unclear enough where they think, oh, that must be a parable. Now, you may or may not remember, but a parable is sort of like a litmus test for faith. Whether you get the parable or not, all depends on the level of faith that you have. It's intended to harden people who don't trust the Lord and who don't recognize who he is, And it's intended to illuminate those who do respond to Jesus in faith. All of that is back in Mark chapter 4. And so the disciples, I think, sense that something like that is going on here. This is a little obscure, but we want to understand it. So they ask him about it. Jesus responds, verse 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? And they are. They don't get it yet. And we continue to see this pattern in the disciples. We saw it with the feeding of the 5,000. We'll see it again in chapter eight. But Jesus goes ahead and explains to them and teaches them exactly what he's talking about. Look at the rest of verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? There's that word again, defile. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Now he gets a little specific here, doesn't he? talking about the digestive system and how it works. And so the Pharisees had been concerned with the disciples eating with unwashed hands, and they thought that that would defile them. It would make them unable to enter the presence of a holy God. But Jesus makes it very clear here, that's not how defilement works. You guys are missing the point. You don't get defiled from the outside in. Why? Well, look again the end of verse 18 and into verse 19. Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. What we eat comes from the outside, goes into our stomachs, and it all ends up in the same place, doesn't it? On the journey of your food, Whether you eat with washed hands or unwashed hands, the point that Jesus makes that's so key here is that it never touches your heart. It never makes contact with your heart. That is the center of the matter. That's the most important piece that Jesus wants them to understand. Now, we're going to go back to the heart here in a few minutes because this is... The heart of this passage. This is the most vital thing. And you need to understand what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the heart and why it's so important and so significant. And so we're going to go back to that in a second, but let's, let's camp here for a minute. This misunderstanding of holiness, of defilement, and of what's wrong with human beings. And let's think about this. Jesus is talking about food specifically here, right? This is the immediate problem at hand because of the Pharisees and their concerns. But this principle that what's wrong with us is not from the outside in, this could be expanded to touch a whole host of other things in application. It's not food, it's not ethnicity. It's not social status, it's not economic status, it's not dress, it's not anything that is external to you that ultimately defiles you as as a human being. And what the Pharisees were doing here, you'll see this next time as we get into the rest of chapter 7, but what the Pharisees were doing is they were misunderstanding what's wrong with human beings, they were misunderstanding defilement, and they were using that to exclude the Gentiles, to keep them at arm's length and to keep the Jews away from the Gentiles. It's because they wrongly answered this question, what's wrong with us? And so when you and I, let's think personally about this. When we place the emphasis of holiness on externals and fail to deal with the heart, then what happens is we end up excluding people based on external causes. And when you do that, you end up arrogant and self-righteous, which is what we see with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that because they kept their hands clean, they were better than everyone else and more holy. And that's not the case. Look at the end of verse 19. Here's a little editor's note by Mark. Thus, he declared all foods clean. This is in keeping with this principle that what comes from the outside can't defile a person and make them unable to enter into God's presence. Now, if you stop and think about this statement by Mark here for a second, the the reality is there were Old Testament laws that told the Jews what to eat. They were to not eat certain things. They were to eat certain things. So why does Mark say this? I mean, what's Jesus doing here? Is he saying the law doesn't matter anymore? You have to understand that when Jesus came to earth, he fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly, and the goal of the Old Testament law is found in Jesus Christ. Its end is found in him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Look what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The Old Testament, I didn't come to abolish them, to set them aside. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what the ministry of Jesus is all about. It's about fulfilling. It's not that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. He's just saying that now that the king has come and inaugurated his kingdom, things have shifted dramatically because the one who fulfills the law is here. The Jews couldn't exclude the Gentiles because of circumcision, food laws, or any other externals because Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, has come. So when you read your Old Testament, you read it in light of the coming of Christ. You read it knowing its true purpose, which is to point to the one who ultimately was the goal, the end game, and the fulfillment of the law. So we interpret and we read the laws in light of the coming of Christ now. And the Pharisees completely missed that about the ministry of Jesus. They didn't see that he was the king, the fulfillment of the law, standing right in front of them. And so this understanding and what Mark says here helps us to see that God's goal has always been the transformation of the heart and not just the keeping of externals. Even the Old Testament pointed toward that. And you see that theme over and over again in the Jewish scriptures. And that leads us to our second answer. And here's the crux of the matter. What's wrong with us? It's not the outside in. It's not food, ethnicity, economic status, but it's the inside out. Here's the real problem. So Jesus tells us in verse 18, look there again. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart. There's, There's the real issue. It's the heart. That's the core of the issue. Now he goes back to that in verse 20. Look there. And he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. What does he mean what comes out of a person? For, verse 21, from within, here's what he means, out of the heart of man. Come, here's what comes out of our hearts. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. So rather than our issue being... Externals, food, what comes from outside of us, our major problem, the heart of our issue is what comes from inside of us, what comes out of our hearts. That's where our problem lies. Now, when you read this, you have to think carefully about what Jesus means when he says the heart Because a lot of times we can read this word heart and we can bring our 21st century understanding of the word heart into this and we'll get it wrong. Because what we typically mean when we say heart is not what the Bible means when the word heart is used. When we think of heart in our culture, we typically use the metaphor of the heart as talking about emotions, don't we? It's where we feel, and that's what the heart is. And it's not that it's bad to do that. It's just that you don't want to bring that understanding into your Bible and read it that way. And because we do that, we often talk about this dichotomy between the head and the heart, don't we? We, we think of the head as where you think and the heart as where you feel or where your emotions happen. And so when we do that, I think we've put asunder, we've separated two things that should not be separated. And biblically, they're put together. They work very much together. Your emotions impact your thinking, don't they? And your thinking impacts your emotions. Vice versa. Both of those happen in your life. The heart thinks. That doesn't sound appropriate in our culture, the way we use heart. But Biblically speaking, the heart thinks, the heart feels, the heart chooses, the heart desires, the heart remembers. Just one passage that brings all of this together, talking about the sinfulness of man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, so there's desire, of the thought, so there's thinking of his heart. There his heart, man's heart is wanting and man's heart is thinking And it was evil continually. It wasn't just feeling the wrong things. It was all of that together. Your heart is the engine that drives you. It's everything internal. It's your whole human personality. It's not just your emotions. When I asked Bethany to marry me, I asked her to marry me, and it wasn't just an emotional decision. It was certainly that. But it wasn't just an emotional decision. My emotions were involved, but it was also my thinking, my wanting, my desires, my choosing, my remembering. I asked her to marry me out of the overflow of my heart. It was everything inside of me, my brain, my emotions, my desires, my will, my personality, all of it. The whole of my being was coming together and responding to Bethany and asking her to marry me. That's what the heart is and does. The heart is the control center for everything that you are and everything that you do. That's what the Bible's talking about. And it's out of the heart, not just your emotions, but all that is inside of you. It's out of your heart that comes all this stuff that is mentioned in verses 21 and 22. Look again there. For from within, out of the heart of man, come. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. This is, this is quite the list of things that come out of our hearts and manifest themselves in actions and desires and wants and everything else. You can see in this list, I won't go through every single sin that is mentioned there, but you can see in the list, it begins with the word evil thoughts. And that's kind of a header for the list. This would be the, the top of the list and it would summarize all the rest of these things that are mentioned here. This means evil reasoning, evil designs, evil arguments. It's the inner workings of your heart and they're aimed at the wrong thing. And so it leads to all of this other stuff. There's a great passage that I think describes this really well in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's talking about unbelievers. he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. You can see all of these internal words, intentions, ignorance, minds, understanding, Hardness of heart. All of these internal words are describing that these people are aimed in the wrong direction. Everything about their internal control center is bent on the wrong things. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So if the heart is made up of both the mind and the will, then this heading, evil thoughts, it's something like evil inclinations. You're aimed at the wrong thing. We're prone to desire these sins. We want them in our hearts, and then our reasoning, our thinking, justifies wanting those things, doesn't it? They work together, so that we don't feel quite so bad about pursuing the wrong things. I love. Uh, since moving to Detroit in March, I there's this quote by Henry Ford that I love. I'm sure you all have seen it several places. Uh, Something like this, you can have whatever color car you want so long as it's black. (laughs) I love that, right? And it's like that with our hearts. Oh, sure, you can have whatever you want, but they're always aimed at the wrong thing. They always want the wrong thing, and then they use their minds to justify wanting the wrong thing. We are enslaved to this list of sins in our hearts. That's how you and I come prepackaged into this world how our little kids are. We can only see one possible, reasonable course of action, and it's to choose the black car over and over again. And we justify that in our thinking. And the scary thing is, is that every vice on this list originates in the heart. It comes from within. Nothing from outside of you forces you to want and to pursue these things. And to think about these things and to justify thinking about these things and wanting these things. Nothing from outside of you forces you down this path. One author said this, all these vices are therefore from inside and thus represent the real character of the person from whom they issue. You know, just pause here for a second. When someone in the news does something horrific, think of Matt Lauer recently. And people say, well, that's not the real Matt Lauer. Yes, it is. And it's the real you and it's the real me. That is who we are because these things come from the inside. No one forces you to do those things. They come out of a bent and wrongly aimed control center, which is your heart. It is such moral qualities in their practical outworking, which destroy a person's relationship with God, not the external matter of which is eaten. Defilement then is seen exclusively in moral terms. And Jesus summarizes this in verse 23. Brings the whole thing together. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Here's the real problem. Our hearts are tragically corrupt. The engine of our being, which includes your thinking, your will and emotions is broken. So that can be hard to take, right? That's hard to hear. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to hear that. It's much easier. It's much more natural when things go wrong to blame something outside of you, isn't it? It's easier to say, my coworker makes me so mad. What have you done there? You're playing right into the Pharisees' assessment of what your issue is. You're saying something external to you has caused you to... To hate and to be angry. No. It comes from within, out of your heart. Now your coworker might not be someone you want to spend Christmas with, but your hatred of him or her doesn't come because of them. It comes from inside your heart. And that is what defiles you. And that's what keeps all of us from God's presence. So what does this mean for us? If the problem for us is at our most basic and fundamental level is a, new, is a heart. If the problem is your, your control center, your engine, your thinking, your will, your emotions, then the only answer to that problem is that you and I need a new heart. That's what we need. We can't fix ourselves. Asking someone to fix and reform their heart, their thinking, their will, and their emotions is like asking a blind man to construct his own glasses. It's impossible. From the beginning, he can't do that. He is incapable of doing it. You and I cannot reform ourselves through outward, external actions and duties. It's impossible. You have to be born again. You have to receive a new heart. Jesus makes this clear to Nicodemus, doesn't he? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to have a new heart here. And the problem is, is that every person who is born on this earth is born with a defiled heart, with a control center that is out of whack, that always chooses the black car. Your heart will not consistently choose that which is good and honorable. Your heart will lie, it will cheat, it will steal, it will exploit others. Your heart will use and abuse the gifts that God has given and then fail to give thanks to God for those very gifts that you have received. And there's only so much external reform that you and I can muster, isn't there? It's like trying to push a broken down car up a hill. You may be able to do it for a while, but eventually you will tire out and the car will slide down the hill and you'll be right back where you started. The natural inertia of the human heart is towards sin and corruption because of Adam and Eve and our participation with them in sin. And so all of that is why we need new hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the good news that Jesus came proclaiming in the gospel of Mark. New hearts come through repentance of sin, through recognizing that my heart is corrupt and my control center is bent on the wrong things, repentance of sin, turning from that and turning to Jesus and saying, I cannot reform myself on my own. I need you and the righteousness that you provide for me. And he promises to provide that new heart and to make us new and to give us new life through being born again. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But once you and I are new, as hopefully most people in here are, once you've received that new heart and you've been born again, there are implications about this passage for us as well. As we're on that journey of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I think this passage teaches us is that we have to, as believers, cultivate affections and desires and not just behaviors. Now, behaviors are important. And a lot of times, the way you cultivate desires is through new behaviors. They work hand in hand. Just like your emotions and your thinking work together, not set apart behaviors and desires work hand in hand, but it's not enough to just have a reform in behavior. The goal of the Christian life is to put on virtue, which is a new quality of character that becomes natural to you. It becomes how you respond when an event takes place in your life. That's what God desires and wants for believers. He wants the reform of your heart since that's where the problem lies in the first place. He desires to make all things new in believers. And if you are a Christian today, you have entered into that process of being made new. And one day that will be culminated on the new earth when you are fully made like Christ. So as believers, we have to be very careful about thinking that we're okay and we're doing fine. If I, if I just avoid some of these major sins listed here, if I just avoid theft and murder and adultery, then I'm doing all right. No, the evil in your heart is still dictating how you live. And God's goal in saving you is to reform your emotions, your will, your desires, and all of that. God wants your lifestyle to match the salvation That you have been given. Think of it like this when a new when a child is adopted into a family, maybe a little bit older, four, five, six years old, when when he or she is adopted into a family, he has an official status where he becomes a member of that family. The judge pronounces him a member of that family and he becomes a Smith or a Jones or whatever. Well, now he has to learn how to function as a member of that family, doesn't he? He has to learn the culture of the family, the attitudes of the family. And he has to begin to live out what it means to be a member of that family. And over time, maybe not at first, but over time his affection and his desire for the members of that family will grow and it will change. And eventually it will be very natural for him to live as a member of that family. And he may not even be able to really remember much about his previous life in some ways. That's what God wants to do in us as believers. He wants to change the culture of our hearts to be new and to be Christ-like. So, what's wrong with us? It's a tough question to ask. It's a tough answer to receive. But my prayer is that we will take these two sermons, this passage in Mark 7, explaining what is wrong with us, something deep in our hearts, and use these passages as an encouragement that you have received a new heart. And God, if you're a believer, is in the process of making you new and putting on real righteousness, which will match the righteousness that you have been objectively given through Jesus Christ. And understand that Jesus came to earth We have the gospel of Mark because Jesus came to earth to fix our deepest problems. He came because we have a heart problem. We don't just need reform outside. We need a change of heart. And he came to give us these new hearts so that we will be at home in his family. And that's the end game, isn't it? What I talked about earlier, that you're participating in a worship service that's already going on. That's the end goal. It's so that you will be made like Jesus Christ. And one day we will stand in his presence and we will be rejoicing and joining fully without any sin into the worship and the adoration and the honor that is going on between the members of the Trinity for all of eternity. You and I have been adopted into that family. And that's what we're headed toward. So let's even this week live in light of that And make progress in heart change that will be like we're members of that family now. And we'll begin to live that out this week. That's good news that God is doing that in us, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we want changed hearts. We're not capable of doing that on our own. Even this morning, we look at this list of sins and... We see so many of these things still at root in our hearts. But we also understand that we've been objectively placed into your family and you have given us your Holy Spirit. And he is at work in us now to change us, to reform us, and to make us like your son. And so we ask that you would do that in us this week. We thank you for the gospel. Please help us to preach it to ourselves every day. We have received the righteousness of Christ. We are objectively a part of your family. And that becomes the motivation and the foundation of our growth and godliness. We can't do this on our own, Father. We need you. We need your grace. Thank you for it in advance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.